Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions. An accidental company. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode number 10 of the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This one for Friday, February 8th. 2019. It's actually, I guess, another early bird edition of the Bobcast, available now for a limited time only on Thursday, February 7th. Because I got stuff to do tomorrow on Friday and taping it today just fit the schedule a lot better. So here we go. Now, I I guess this is the, uh, it's been three weeks since I last did a Bobcast edition of the Bobcast. So thank you very much for your patience. Much appreciated. I just figured that if NHL players get a five-day bye during the regular season in January or February, then I guess I, too, deserve that. And by extension, the Bobcast should get one as well. So so last week, let's just say I was on my five-day bye, and that's my story, and I stick to it. And And if you do want to know the truth, I did in the middle of last week sort of wake up one day and say, holy mackerel, I got to do another Bobcast already? Are you kidding me? So yeah, things were a little jammed up on the schedule last week. But I also knew in the back of my mind that I really wanted to switch up the cycle a little bit anyway. That is, going every other week from now, this week, fits the overall schedule and my schedule a lot better than the original rotation where if we'd gone every other week starting last week. So that's a big rationalization on why I thought it was okay to delay things for a week. So speaking of which, that means two weeks today, the Thursday, so whatever the date is. So wait a second, what is it? So today is the 7th. So Thursday, February 21st. Uh, We're going to do a big pre-Trade Center Bobcast Bonanza, as we did last year. More on that at the very end of the Bobcast here. And then the rest of the shows, the rest of the season, just fit better, coinciding with things like the end of the regular season, playoffs, etc. So, anyways, I did get some funny reactions last week when I tweeted out uh, the news of the the schedule change uh, the day or two before the Bobcast was supposed to appear. Now, most everyone took it pretty well, but there were a few disgruntled people, which is understandable. You know, people come to expect what is expected. But as I said in my tweet, as the founder, president, chief executive officer, chief operating officer, supreme allied commander and major domo of this podcast, I pretty much get to call my own shots on this stuff. And uh, as I said, it just works better. So sorry for the inconvenience, but... uh, The reality is, and I've I've said this before, the Bobcast is actually a labor of love, Uh, something I pretty much do for shits and giggles, and I shoehorn it around all the other stuff I do for my real job, and and when it stops being fun and starts being uh, really arduous, which only from time to time do I feel it's arduous, then I'll I'll just pack the whole thing in. But in the meantime, um, here I am, ready to go. I got a little news on uh, our sponsorship with uh, our advertising. Uh, more on Nantucket coming up in a bit. But let's get busy. I, I mean, the trade deadline, as we said, two weeks this Monday. 
And I'd like to say that if I look really hard into the future, I can almost see mail it in March on the other side of the horizon there. But the reality is there is too much work, too much fun and games with Darren Dreger and Pierre Lebrun and James Duffy and the whole Trade Center thing to even tease myself with thoughts of mail it in March. So it's the uh, the, the long, hard trek through February. And, and there is part of me that thinks this next two plus weeks is going to be absolutely crazy. That, that maybe the, the quality and the quantity of players that's available in trade is going to be off the charts. And th- this whole run-up to Trade Center, including the actual day, maybe for a change, I know <laughs> Duffy's really hoping that, is going to be bonkers. And I, and I think it easily could be that way. So think about it for a minute. Artemi Panarin, Mark Stone, Matt Duchesne. If those guys move between now and the deadline, preferably closer to the deadline, and Duffy's already put in an order for on the deadline, just think about it for a moment. I mean, Panarin and Stone are two of the very best wingers in the entire National Hockey League. They're stars, maybe superstars in their own right. Um, Matt Duchesne, you know, there's always been lots of argument. Is he a true number one center in the National Hockey League? But whether you, whatever side of that you come down on, He's having a career year, 90-plus point projection right now, and he's, he's, he's a really talented offensive guy that you could definitely play on just about any team in the league outside of, outside of Pittsburgh um, as, as, or Toronto or you know, a few places where they have two franchise centers. But on most teams, he's going to fit in the top two center of, of, of any configuration and be, uh, be an impact guy. So, you know, if Panarin, Stone, Duchesne actually move to teams, contending teams down the stretch, they are all potential game changers. Then, then you start to go down the list of all the other guys who could potentially, and I say potentially because they're not guaranteed, but potentially on the move. You know, Anaheim might be selling off some assets. Could Hampus Lindholm be had? Um, Adam, Adam Henrique out of Carolina. His name's starting to pop up with more regularity, although with years left on his contract, I don't know. Um, you know, we've been talking all season about the right shot D in Carolina. Is it Pesci? Is it Falk? Is it Hamilton? One of those guys could move. Michael Furland may or may not move. Uh, what about Sergei Bobrovsky along with Panarin in, um, in uh, Columbus? You know, Gustav Nyquist and some of the other rentals that the Detroit Red Wings have and will most certainly be... Uh, uh, marketing. Uh, Derek Broussard, now that he's in Florida, maybe Mike Hoffman in Florida, there's been some talk that he might be an expendable piece of the puzzle as Florida looks to create um, more cap room for and budget room for next year um, for uh, to run out and go after Bobrovsky and Panarin and free agency. We've heard more Tyler Toffoli talk out of L.A., um, potentially we, the Devils will be selling Marcus Johansson. We already saw the Brian Boyle trade this past week to the Nashville Predators. Um, you know, the Rangers are going to be moving bodies. Kevin Hayes, Matt Zuccarello. I don't think Chris Kreider would get traded, but Jeff Gordon's going to listen if somebody calls. Um, you know, in addition to Stone and Duchesne possibly in Ottawa, what about Ryan Dezingle? I'm sure they'll take a stab at signing him, but um, he could be on the move as well. Wayne Simmons in Philly is quite likely to be traded. Questions about him coming up. What about Burakovsky with the Washington Capitals? Lots of first-round picks in play. So I dare to dream, and and it is James Duffy's dream, that all those players I mentioned are all moved and it's a frenetic pace and that some of it leads up and, and happens before the deadline, but a lot of it actually goes down on the actual um, trade deadline day. It could be fantastic, but 
as is always the case, um, it could be something way less than exciting too. I mean, what if Columbus just says, no, we're not trading Panarin, no, not, no chance on Bobrovsky. What if Matt Duchesne signs with the Senators? I personally doubt it. I'd be really, really surprised, but I guess he hasn't closed the door on it just yet. And and my feeling, as it was before, and I think I've, I don't know if I mentioned it on previous Bobcasts or whether it's just been something we've talked about a million times on insider trading, um, my needle on Stone and Duchesne is that they're not going to sign in Ottawa and they're going to be traded now. I guess they could. And, and I'm sure Ottawa will continue here in the next number of days to try and take a run at, at that. But um, I don't know. I, I think by the time Monday rolls around and we two weeks out from the trade deadline, we're going to have some clarity on the guys in Ottawa. And I know uh, in the last 24 hours, the big news was that Eugene Melnick had a function two nights ago. So that would have been Tuesday night at the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto with his entire team in attendance, all the players there, but a lot of corporate people as well basically said hey listen here's the plan um we're gonna we're gonna by by 2021 a couple more years of a rebuild and in two years we're gonna start spending right to the cap and we're gonna do it for five years straight and we're gonna be awesome and we're gonna win cups and it's gonna be great and on and on it goes what i found interesting is that this was announced to the players um at the hall of fame on tuesday night and all these corporate people um but the release from the ottawa senators did not come out until right in the middle dead set in the middle of the toronto ottawa game last night that would be wednesday night uh hey listen i don't blame the sense for looking for maximum exposure on something and if you're on national television in canada with a Toronto-Ottawa Battle of Ontario game, and you want to put out a press release in the middle of the game, which is really unusual. For a team to put out press releases in the middle of a game that they're playing doesn't happen very often. And uh, anyways, um, to get maximum impact, sure, go for it. But the cynical side of me says that maybe it was just that, PR, and that this is a gesture on the part of the senators to let everybody know, hey, if Stone and Duchesne go their merry way and choose not to sign with us and we're forced to trade them, well, we just told everybody, like we told you last week, we're a cap team in 21, on and on, and and that's what we told them, and that was our plan, and if they don't want to buy into it, that's fine, but we did everything we possibly could, and we're prepared to go the extra mile, even if these other guys aren't. Anyways, that's just kind of blue-skying what might happen here in the next few days or the next week, but um, it'll be interesting. But I guess the flip side of lots of excitement leading up to the deadline, including the deadline, is that there it could be this year that there are so many rentals, so many teams selling off so many assets that the market just gets loaded with players and that it creates this kind of rush hour log jam gridlock thing where the, the buying teams are grinding the sellers down and saying, I'm not going to take that guy. I could go get that other guy for cheaper from another team. And suddenly some of the teams that could go either way, they decide to sell or hold. They, they all Suddenly you see what could be a really tame trade deadline where nearly not as much action is expected. I hope that's not the case, but... Um, I always allow that that uh, that possibility, but I still say, at the very least, it is not very often leading up to a trade deadline, at least not in recent years, 
where you get players of Stones and Duchesne, uh, their stature, potentially available. And I do believe that they could be game changers for a contending team. And if Panarin moves, which part of me kind of doubts, but it's possible, just think about July 1st and the kind of money that those three players alone um, would command on the open market. I mean, I think Panarin's going to be looking for $11 million, might get in the 10s. Um, th- there's no doubt in my mind that Stone's going to get $9 million plus in the open market. I think a guy like Duchesne would get $8 million plus on the open market. So to be able to get them as rentals now, that's big. That's pretty big. So let's, uh, let's get into some questions here, and, and we'll start with uh, the obvious stuff, trade-related questions on the Bobcast. Okay, first question comes from Mitch Whitmer, and it's Philadelphia Fly-related, and I've been getting this question a lot from a lot of people. Hey, Bob, at the time of this writing, Tuesday night, the Flyers have won eight consecutive games and have gone from being 14 points to five points out of a playoff spot in just over a week. Does this in any way change Chuck Fletcher's plans at the deadline, more specifically regarding Wayne Simmons? Thanks in advance That from Mitch Whitmer. Well, first off, the Flyer story is pretty incredible. Um, Hextall fired, Hextall fired, uh, team completely in the tank, spiraling out of control. And as Mitch points out, uh, they're on an incredible run here. Uh, 9-1-0 in their last 10. They've won eight games in a row. And the funny thing about talking about playoff races, and as Mitch noted on Tuesday, he mentioned that they went from being 14 points to only five points out. As I now look at it here a couple of days later, um, they are now eight points out of a playoff spot by my uh, calculations. Yeah, eight points. Um, Because they got 54, and Columbus has, Columbus is holding down the final wild card right now with 61. So eight points to get in, and Columbus has a game in hand, and Philadelphia still has to climb over Carolina. They still have to climb over Buffalo. And one of the things that I talk a lot about is what I call the natural ebb and flow of the NHL regular season. And it's incredible that the Flyers have won eight in a row. And who knows, maybe they'll make it 9, 10, or 11. That's quite possible. But what I also know about any team that wins eight, nine, ten games in a row um, is that they're going to regress. They're going to regress to the mean at some point. And that means, whether that means playing 500 hockey for a stretch or in some cases losing a lot more than they win in their next ten games, it tends to happen a lot. So, yes, the Flyers have done a magnificent job, and and Carter Hart's been at the root of a lot of it. The goaltending has been great. It's been quite a story. But I think Scott Gordon, and we'll talk more about Gordon because I know there's a question in here somewhere about him, but um, they've done a much better job of defending lately. Their special teams are better. So they've stopped the bleeding. They've stabilized. They're on an incredible run. How long it lasts, anybody's guess, but I suspect the notion of them actually making the playoffs and closing up the remaining ground, it's not as easy as it looks or sounds, but uh, it's miraculous that they've done what they've done so far. But in any case, all that aside, I would say this. I don't believe that flirting with the playoffs is going to change Chuck Fletcher's MO um, leading up to the deadline in any great way. Um, especially as it relates to Simmons. As of right now, and again, subject to change with all the usual Bobcast provisos of one phone call, everything can change. 
Um, I don't think they're going to get Simmons signed. And if they don't get him signed, I think they're going to move him. And like everybody else at this deadline, they'll be looking for a first-round pick or a first-round pick and a prospect or a really good prospect or a first-round pick and a lesser prospect or a second-round pick and a better prospect. You know, figure it out. But they'll try to move Simmons in there. There will be a huge market for him as long as he stays healthy and uh, plays the way that... um, the way that he can as for the heavy lifting that Chuck Fletcher wants to do organizationally. He wants a top four veteran defenseman. He wants a veteran goaltender who can help insulate Carter Hart and mentor him and be part of a, a tandem with Hart that would give them depth. Um, because the same thing applies when I talk about the natural ebb and flow of the NHL season, I'm going to talk about the natural ebb and flow of, of hot goaltenders. It's really hard for any goaltender in the league to stay hot for any period of time, um, like a whole season. It's it's hard to dominate. Ask Carey Price, ask Pekka Rinne, ask the goaltenders who one minute are Vezina caliber guys and the next minute look like they've lost their confidence and their game has gone south. And it's even harder, I would think, for a kid like Carter Hart to sustain that level of excellence that he's shown so far for the Philadelphia Flyers. So, yeah, they're looking for a veteran guy to help insulate them. Um, I don't know that they're going to be able to get any of that at the deadline. And um, But if they if they do make a run here for the playoffs, um, outside of Simmons, um, you know, they, they may just hang in and, and, as I say, Chuck will do his heavy lifting in the offseason. Um, next question comes from a regular Bobcast listener right from day one. In fact, he might have got a question on the very inaugural edition of the Bobcast. But in any case, Ben Clancy from Peterborough, who always asks good questions, says, Hey, Bob, with the trade deadline coming up soon and Tampa looking like a legit contender, what are your thoughts on any moves they could make? This may be a biased view, but they seem really solid depth-wise in almost all areas. Thanks for taking the time to answer my question. Ben Clancy, Peterborough. Well, I think um, all teams at this time of the year, uh, and I heard David Poyle, the general manager of the Nashville Predators, say it the other day after he made trades for um, Brian Boyle and Cody McLeod. um, GMs always say the following two things. Uh, Number one, if we have to go into the playoffs with our roster exactly as is right now, we're perfectly content to do that. And number two, of course... If we could make a trade that would improve our team and it makes sense, then most definitely we'll do it. And and the first one is just to guard against if, if the GM does nothing between now and the deadline, he wanted it on record a couple of weeks before or any time leading up to the trade deadline. Hey, I told you, perfectly happy with our team. We love it. Don't need to do anything. And if we don't do anything, don't yell at me because we're all good. That's That's the code for that. And the second part is, um, if we can improve our team, we will do it. Well, of course you will. That's your job. Um, But that's also basically opening the door saying, yeah, we consider just about anything. So, yeah, I think David Poyle's talking to to Columbus about Panarin, although I think the price is too high. I think David Poyle and just about Kevin Cheveldayoff and every other contender will be wanting to know what goes on with Stone and Duchesne and what the price is going to be and and what have you. So um, Tampa's most certainly in that boat. And, and and more than any team in the league, Julian Breesbaugh, the general manager in Tampa, could justify saying, yeah, you know what? I like our team. We don't need to do anything. We're not going to do anything. And yet, I think if the opportunity to tweak things or bring somebody in, 
um, strengthen it a little more? Absolutely he will. So, you know, I think I mentioned Wayne Simmons earlier. There's the type of player that maybe Tampa would like to, to bring in if they could and could play around with some future assets to, to try and maybe get a rental that uh, that helps them a little bit. So um, we'll keep an eye on Tampa, but um, uh, Julian's probably the one GM in the league who, when he says, I like my team just the way it is, we're not... We don't feel the need to. We don't feel any pressure to do anything. Is probably telling the truth, but nevertheless, I do believe he'll look at all his options and all these rentals and whether it's a Wayne Simmons type or whatever. That that might be the type of thing that would uh, fit in for them. But uh, boy, Tampa's been good this year. Okay, next question comes from Anthony in Hamilton. Any chance the Leafs go after an upgrade at fourth-line center, preferably a right-shot guy who can kill penalties? Not really anyone on the roster that can take right-side face-offs, five, versus five on five or on the PK. And, and, and in someone who could bring a physical presence that Gauthier and Lindholm, that would be Freddie Gauthier and Parr Lindholm, lack, then it's added bonus for sure. Babcock loves Glenn Denning, but he's not the greatest deal to be a fourth line center. Not on the greatest contract or deal to be a fourth center. So wondering if you had any insight. Keep up the great work on the pod. One more month until mail it in March. Yes, Anthony, mail it in March. Can't wait, but I got work to do. So let's get to uh, the question at hand. I do believe the Leafs are looking for for depth at the uh, the forward position. Um, and whether that's a Michael Furland or a Wayne Simmons type, and a lot of these same names are coming up over and over again. We just saw Brian Boyle move. And, and the Leafs have historically done the the fourth-line center thing to death where they you know, they signed Dominic Moore a couple of years ago. They made the deal for Brian Boyle two years ago. Uh, Thomas Lacanitz last year. Um, I think that they they would look fondly on, on as you say, Anybody that's got the flexibility to be versatile. So that is, you know, everybody in Toronto is obsessed with saying, get a heavy forward. Somebody can play the heavy game. And Simmons and Furland are the two guys as rentals that fit that mode. I don't know that the Leafs are going to go crazy in the rental market um, and give up first-round picks after giving up one for Muzzin, who had a year left on his deal. Um, but they they are looking for somebody that can can be a competitive forward that has the ability to play wing or center, um, that takes face-offs or kills penalties. And um, so, uh, as I say, I, I think they're also looking to see if they could still add the right shot D. I think given the choice between the two, because they got Muzzin, even though he's a left shot D, I think they're probably thinking it's more practical that there's more options to get a forward than a defenseman. And I'm still... No, I don't want to say I'm skeptical of them giving up another first-round pick if the prices are that high on rentals like Simmons and Furlan. But um, I think they're looking, and I think they're going to try. And if the prices come down, I could easily see them giving up other prospects in the organization, not Rasmus Sandin, um, definitely not him, but um, just about anybody else. Liljegren, I don't think they're married to, to holding on to Liljegren, um, uh, amongst others. And... Uh, uh, they don't want to blow their brains out on rentals, but I think they feel like, hey, listen, if we can if we can load up here this year, let's do it. Anyways, there you go, Anthony from Hamilton. 
Uh, next one up. Uh, Matt Gibson says, Hi, Bob. As a Red Wings fan who's been wondering if Jimmy Howard is going to find a new home by the trade deadline, I've been surprised there's been no talk of San Jose looking for a goaltender. They are currently second last in the league in save percentage. Um, but that the only talk I've heard is them looking at forwards. Do you think they will try to improve their goaltending position at the deadline? I should point out that Matt's email came in on February the 1st. So about a week ago, um, just in case um, San Jose's safe league save percentage has changed positions. But um, you know what? Here's the problem that San Jose is going to run into. Um, they gave up a first-round pick for a rental in Evander Kane, who turned out to be more than that. They signed him. So, yeah, that, that's why it cost them the first-round pick to Buffalo. They also gave up future considerations, including another first-round pick, in the um, in the Eric Carlson trade, so um, back to back occasions where they have given up um, first round picks, and they're hoping obviously that Carlson turns into be more than a rental and a, a long term rental, a full season rental, and maybe we'll talk more about that a little later in the Bobcast. But um, I don't want to say they're going to do nothing at the deadline because Doug Wilson will always try to improve his team if he can, and he's been very active in previous deadlines in doing that. But I think the Carlson acquisition counts as their big move for this year. And uh, I'm certainly not in a position where I feel like that uh, they're going to blow their brains out at the deadline and, uh, you know, keep an eye out for what they can or can't do. But um, I'm just not necessarily convinced that uh, there'll be a major player in the rental market here and uh, I think if they get healthy um, they could still be a real threat in the Western Conference Um, as for the goaltending I know that uh, Martin Jones has struggled at times and uh, they've got uh, Arundel as the backup but I think San Jose feels like they've got some real good depth at that position in the American Hockey League with Kornar and and uh, and Bebo and if push came to shove I, I think the Sharks could could take either one of those guys and maybe plug them in in the backup role um, if they feel like that they uh, they need that. I know the Sharks are really happy with how their teams performed in, in the American Hockey League this year, not just the goalies, but all the players. They've got lots of guys developing down there. So Roy Summers done a real good job in, uh, in the American League with the Barracuda. Um, so, um, no, I'm, I'm not necessarily convinced that San Jose will be a major player at the deadline but um, given the fact that they they went out and got Kane and got Carlson um, and have some kids coming through the system at various positions I don't know that that should be a surprise to anybody next question Boston Bruin related says subject matter DeBrusque being moved question mark Uh, this comes from Lucas Salvatore Bob do you think Jake DeBrusque is actually available or would it be too difficult for the Bruins to get rid of them considering their trouble scoring? Thank you. Um, good question, Lucas. Um, my, my take is that the Bruins are looking to add offense, not delete it. And I suppose in any scenario, and any team would tell you this, and believe me, I don't want to radio myself here and, and suggest that there's some scenario where the Bruins are getting ready to trade Jake DeBrus because I don't believe that they are. But if you had to trade Jake DeBrus to get a, a better scorer. Um, you know, any, any team would upgrade if they can. 
But here, here's my take on it. Obviously, the Bruins have one of, if not the top line in the league with Pasternak, Marchand, and Bergeron. And then you've got Krejci and DeBrusque on the second line. And I think the Bruins love what DeBrusque, for the most part, has has brought to the, the dance as quickly as he has um, for them. And what they're looking to do is to try and find somebody else. They're looking for their, their sixth forward, somebody that could move on to that second line and be a significant offensive addition. And talked a little bit about this last night on the Bruin Ranger game um, on the NBC uh, Sports Network um, telecast of that. And, and, you know, we've heard there was some talk earlier where I think the Bruins were scouting Tyler Toffoli and the LA Kings. Toffoli's a, a goal scorer who's not scoring at the clip that he'd like. And the Kings obviously are on hard times. And maybe things have slowed down a little bit from earlier in the season because lo and behold, when you look at that Western Conference, I mean, even the Kings are in a playoff race. Um, if you squint hard enough in the Western, in the, the let, let's have a look at that one second here. Let me call up my standings as of today. So there's the LA Kings, dead last. And I mean, oh, there's, come on, my iPad screen just froze. Are you kidding me? There we go. It's unfrozen. Um, so Ottawa's at 43 points in 53 games. Jersey's at 47 points in 52 games. So LA Kings, three from the bottom overall in 53 games, 48 points. 48 points. They are literally seven points out of a playoff spot. And they have a game in hand on Vancouver. That's insane. Now, they'd have to crawl over Anaheim, Chicago, Edmonton, Arizona, Colorado, and St. Louis to get at Vancouver. But that whole wacky Western Conference faux playoff race where virtually every team, including the L.A. Kings in last place, are technically still in it. Um, That's bizarre world. But anyways, back to the original point about the Bruins. Um, Whether it's a Tyler Toffoli type player um, or, you know, the rental market. And we, you know, we've heard Boston maybe has interest in Panarin, maybe has interest in Simmons or Furland. Um, But I don't think that Don Sweeney is real excited about the idea of plunging back into the rental market. Uh, Bruins have all their first round picks coming up here. They're well positioned to do something in the rental market if they want to do it. But uh, the Nash deal didn't work out tremendously well for them last year, in part because Nash ended up getting injured and had the concussion and, and what have you. But, um, you know, they're, they'll seriously consider trading for a rental um, because I think they really do feel like if they're going to come out of that uh, that division with uh, with Toronto, now Montreal, come into play, play ball in, in, the, in the race for those second and third spots in the, uh, in the Atlantic division, that they do feel like that they need to add some offense and and a a, a right winger on the second line or a third line center um, would be real good either one of them. So I don't see DeBrusque going out as part of that equation, um, but I do see the Bruins trying real hard to um, to add some of those elements that we just talked about. Uh, here's one. Uh, hi, Bob. I was wondering if the Dallas Stars will be busy at the deadline. Jim Neal seems to be on the hot seat, but he likes to make his moves in the summer. Do you see a surprising move out of Big D? P.S. I enjoy all the wine talk. That from Jordan in Victoria, British Columbia. Jordan, maybe Jordan's friends with Jamie and Jordy Ben, because, of course, the Bens are from Victoria, B.C., 
And um, obviously, Jordan from Victoria, B.C. and Ben Country ask a Dallas Stars question. Um, good question on whether or not they're going to be busy at the deadline. Uh, let's look at the Stars. Where are they in the standings right now? Holding down the number three spot in the division. Uh, well behind Winnipeg and Nashville. Um, but uh, enough ahead of Minnesota in the central. Three points up on Minnesota. Yeah, you know, not guaranteed a, a divisional spot. Um We'll see what happens on the wild card. St. Louis charging hard with 53 points as well. Hmm, that's uh, that's kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, I think um, I don't know that Dallas will necessarily be busy at the deadline. Like all teams, I think they have the generic. If we can improve our team, we will. But uh, I don't think they're going to go crazy with on the rental market to try and uh, push them over the top. Um, I think it's going to be a fascinating off season in Dallas, and and I think you're right. I, I do after Jim lights lit up um, Jamie Ben and Tyler Sagan earlier this year. Um, it, it did put Jim Neal as a general manager in the crosshairs a little bit. And I think owner Tom Gillardi is getting real frustrated that they haven't gotten as much traction from this team as they would have liked at this stage. But the fact that they're in a divisional playoff spot, um, is all kinds of encouraging at this moment in time. And maybe that does spur them on to maybe use some assets to bring in a rental to try and strengthen things and give them a little more offensive balance, which, of course, has been the chronic problem there um, with them being too top-heavy with Ben and Sagan. Um, but as I said, in the off season, I, how the rest of this season unfolds, both up to the deadline, beyond the deadline, and into the playoffs – I think will be absolutely fascinating when you set it against the backdrop of everything happening with lights going nuts on Ben and Sagan and, and what, how they fare in, do they, A, do they make the playoffs? They should, but A, do they make the playoffs and B, how do they perform in the playoffs? And if you, I mean, if if you get a divisional spot, you're going to be probably playing Nashville, but could be playing, Winnipeg, but more likely Nashville. So, so do, you, do you do you upset them? Do you lose to them, but give them a really hard go of it? Or do you go out with a whimper? And if it's the latter, then I, I think all bets are off on just about anything. And, and I'm not going to radio myself or bobcast myself here by saying that I think that there'll be major, major changes in the offseason and that it could involve one of their big boys. But, I mean, just read the writing on the wall, the way that lights went at them, um, where the team is at, and uh, the level of frustration that ownership and management must be feeling. And uh, so let's let it play out, but I think that'll be a fascinating one to keep an eye on in the off season. Okay, that's it for some of the trade talk for now. Um, I'm sure there's plenty more where that came from. Uh, and as I said, continue to tease two weeks from today. Big bonanza pre-trade center um bobcast edition so uh, there you go hey listen uh, very good news on the uh, advertising front our good friends at untuck it are back um another contract they're back on the bobcast and uh, we're pleased to have them so it's uh, it's fantastic news and uh, ladies I should tell you that with Valentine's Day coming up, if you'd like to get your special guy something special, uh, 
and you don't want him to look like a Johnny Slobodensky with his shirt hanging out all over the place down to his knees. Or if he's one of those guys that uh, insists on tucking in his casual shirt and he doesn't have the physique nor the form to uh, tuck in the shirt, then you want to get to untuckit.com or one of the retail stores. And actually, um, for our American Bobcast listeners, um, you if you place your order by February 12th, by 1 p.m. Eastern Time, now this is only available in the U.S., uh, by February 12th, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, you can have it delivered by Valentine's Day. So it doesn't get any better than that. Um, not sure about the Canadian uh, shipping on that, but uh, we'll get some info um, for Canadian shipping. But uh, in any case, whether you're in the States or Canada, uh, go to untuckit.com and get a specifically designed shirt to be worn that's untucked. It's a casual shirt that's not too long, not too short. And untucked shirts, as I've told you, all season long now are a go-to for any occasion from casual to dressy. Uh, if it's good enough for the great one, Wayne Gretzky, who's uh, a spokesman and ambassador for Untucket, it's good enough for you. More than 50 sizing options. Every guy can find the perfect shirt. Go to untuckit.com and check out all the new arrivals. Use promo code BOBCAST, B-O-B-C-A-S-T, for 20% off your purchase. And if you're in Canada, in Toronto, the greater Toronto area, go to Untucket's first Canadian retail store in Sherway Gardens in Etobicoke, or you can shop online from anywhere. So um, there you go. And I should point out, store locations, if you're in the United States, there's no excuse not to go. There's a gazillion locations here. As I look at a heat map of, uh, uh, you got Atlanta, Georgia, Austin, Texas, Aventura, Florida, Bethesda, Maryland, uh, Birmingham, Boca Raton, Boston, Charleston, Chicago, Chicago, Cincinnati, Columbus, Coral Gables, Dallas, Denver, Detroit, Durham, Fort Worth, Houston, Indianapolis, Jacksonville, Kansas City, King of Prussia Mall in the Philadelphia area. There you go. Uh, L.A., L.A., Las Vegas, Louisville. Oh, my goodness. Madison Avenue, New York, Mall of America in Minneapolis, Nashville, Jersey, New Orleans, oh, it goes on and on and on. Anyways, you get the idea. There's a retail store for you somewhere in the United States or the greater Toronto area where you go to untuckit.com. And welcome back, Untuckit. Great to have you back. And remember, if you're ordering anything from there, Bobcast is the promo code B-O-B-C-A-S-T. There we go. We've taken care of business. Okay, lots more questions coming up here on the Bobcast. Uh, the next one comes from Brian, all the way in Somerset in the United Kingdom. Hi, Bob. My name is Brian, and I'm an expat Canadian living in the UK. I'm a huge fan of the Bobcast and of all things Bob McKenzie. I was just having a debate with my cousin Rob, who happens to live in Edmonton, on who the next GM of the Oilers should be. Thinking outside the list of usual suspects, such as Kelly McCrimmon, Ron Hextel, or Mark Hunter, it suddenly occurred to me who would truly be the best man for the job of Euler GM. This candidate has spent his life in hockey and is undeniably universally respected in the hockey world. He is a proud Canadian who is honest and trustworthy and has excellent relationships with other GMs, both past and present. Not to mention, he is second to none when it comes to amateur scouting and evaluating talent. His name is Bob McKenzie. Oh, my goodness. So flattered. Um, 
goes on to, uh, Brian goes on to say, my cousin believes there's no way you'd want this job as you have already been so successful in your career and that there would be no incentive for you to leave your current job, which you love doing. I countered that if under the right set of circumstances, you were given the freedom to work without interference, the challenge of using your lifelong knowledge to guide a Canadian team with Connor McDavid on its roster could be very appealing. My question is, would you ever consider such a role or have you before? Surely you have fantasized about being a GM in the past, given you've been evaluating every GM's move since 1986. If you're on the fence, it may help you to know that Wayne Gretzky has a vineyard and could possibly offer you red wine for life as a sweetener to get the deal done. Again, love the show. Thanks for taking the time to read this. My vote is Bob McKenzie for the next GM of the Oilers, and I'm sure many hockey fans across Canada would agree with me. You can't beat Bob. He's the best. Kind regards, Brian, Somerset, UK. Well, Brian, thank you very much for all the kind words. I'm flattered, embarrassed, and uh, my face is 50 shades of red right now um let's we're, we're, we're to unpack all this stuff okay first off um i am not nearly qualified enough to be a general manager in the national hockey league and i'm not sure that anybody fully understands what a difficult uh, life-consuming job it is um we in the media um evaluate general managers um, and that's part of the job, and, and they know that goes with the territory. And I always like to say I could build you a strong support or, uh, or I could tear any general manager apart with moves that he's made. I could build up any general manager with moves that he's made because I think on volume there's so many GMs that have great things they've done, and those same GMs that have done so many great things, they have bogeys like you wouldn't believe. And if you start to collect all the bogeys, you could paint a really bad picture of somebody. But um, I digress. The, 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 the Most of us in the media, we're just armchair critics. And we all like to think we could do a better job than this general manager or that general manager. And I see it all the time on Twitter and all the keyboard warriors who are absolutely convinced that they know better and they make it sound so easy. And I guess what I'm saying is it's real easy to have an opinion and to take a stand and to make yourself out to be smarter than you are when there's never any accountability that comes with those opinions. And that by very definition is what we in the media do. But And that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but um, it's a hard, hard job. And it requires a lot of experience. And I don't have that experience. Now, you know, if you're asking me if I've ever fantasized about the notion, would I like to run an NHL team? Yeah, you know what? If, if years ago I was going to make a career change, and I mean like 10, it would have to have been 10 years ago, Maybe I should have made a career change 10 years ago where I got involved and started working for a club because I don't believe that you can just say, oh, I'm going to go from the media and be a general manager of a national hockey league team. You got to put in the time. You got to, you got to work through the system. You got to, you got to scout and you got to actually earn your chops evaluating players and, and coming up through the ranks and, and, and doing that. I mean, everybody talks about the boy wonder that is Kyle Dubas, and I don't, I don't say that facetiously. I mean, he's a really young guy that got an unbelievable job, general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. But he, he's been in rinks working at it since he was, you know, a teenager. 
and and spending all his time of all his life consumed by you know doing that job so before he became the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs you know he had well over 10 years experience in the rinks every day working for a player agency were you know being around the Sioux Greyhounds being a general manager and doing all those other things so listen my my son Mike is in his second full season as general manager of the Kitchener Rangers and I I see firsthand what a difficult job it is running a junior hockey franchise and how hard you have to work and how every single night of the week he's out looking at players and that every minute of every day is spent thinking, how do I make this team better? Uh, How do you assemble a team around you of people to make sure that you're getting the absolute most out of your franchise? And, and, you know, in the National Hockey League where you've got to deal with salary caps and so much more pressure and spotlights, it's, it's even greater. So... I'm very flattered that a lot of people and a lot of people have said to me, I bet you could be a GM and I'm here to tell you that I couldn't be, or if I could have been, I should have started a long time ago in doing the legwork necessary to be that general manager. And, and speaking of the Edmonton job, I believe sometime here in the next number of days, Bob Nicholson, um, who's, who's heading up things in Edmonton for owner Daryl Cates is going to begin um, reaching out to teams for permission to talk to um, candidates for the GM's job. I don't think anything's going to happen quickly. Um, I think some of the, the best candidates for this job are probably not available in season. I, I would put Kelly McCrimmon, assistant GM of the Vegas Golden Knights, maybe in that category as somebody who potentially could be the, the general manager of the Edmonton Oilers. But I seriously doubt he'd be made available by the Vegas Golden Knights before the trade deadline or maybe even before this season's over um, or maybe even before the draft, who knows? So I think the process in Edmonton is just starting and it might be a, a long and winding road. We'll see what happens on that. But the, when I look at people who are trying to become general managers and whether that's Kelly McCrimmon, who is, has been an owner, a general manager in Brandon, uh, head coach with the Brandon Wheat Kings, um, he spent his whole life devoted to nothing but being a hockey executive. Um, when, uh, you know, I, Mike Fuda, assistant general manager of the Los Angeles Kings, these happen to be guys I know. I'm not sitting here saying these guys should be the next general manager of the Edmonton Oilers. You could go through every assistant GM in the league, and I'm sure there's reasons why they, they could be. I just happen to know Mike from a long time back. You know, general manager with the Owen Sound Attack in the Ontario Hockey League, being involved with the LA Kings for a good long time now as a scout, but then as uh, as an assistant general manager to Dean Lombardi and now Rob Blake. These are dedicated hockey men who've spent an inordinate amount of time. Um, and as I say, there's lots of different ways to, to, uh, to, to, to go about becoming a general manager in the National Hockey League. Maybe it's on the analytics side. Maybe it's on the, the financial side. And and Julian Brisebois, GM in, in Tampa, originally started out as more of a cap guy than a hockey guy. And I, I, I don't think the door should be closed to anybody. And I'm not saying the only guys who should get jobs are player evaluators that started in junior hockey. But I am saying you've got to put your time in and in and, and whatever it is that, that you do. And... Um, so anyways, uh, long story short, 
Um, I, I'm not qualified to be a general manager. Um, I'm way past that point of switching gears and becoming involved with the team. And there's part of me where that thinks, yeah, I should have done that 10, 12 years ago. Um, but I got to be honest with you, the careers turned out okay. And I'm real close to the end of my full-time career uh, doing what I'm doing. And uh, I'm looking to slow down, not to take a job that absolutely consumes every second of your life and in many, many, many cases eats you up in every way possible with pressure and expectation and workload. So there you have it on that front. Next question, Bob, from one Bob to another, thanks for taking the time to do the show on a consistent basis during your busy schedule. Uh, I always appreciate your insights and addressing questions from the listeners. Um, This email question from another Bob, by the way, who's Bobby Halley um, from Boston. (laughs) He could have said on a semi-consistent basis since we did miss a week there, but in any case, here's the rest of it. My question, can you think of a young defenseman in the last decade that has had such a drastic step back in his development as Ivan Provorov this season in Philadelphia? Based on his first two years of development, he seemed ready to compete for a Norris Trophy. Instead, he's been playing the worst hockey of his career by both the eye test and the advanced metrics and does not look like a first pairing defenseman. Do you think this is simply a bad season that he will bounce back from or true regression in his development that indicates his ceiling is much lower than expected at this time last year? Follow-up question, how do you think this affects his contract negotiations with the Flyers this summer? Thanks, Bobby Holly. Um, this is a, a great question and, and Bobby's uh, absolutely right. When when Ivan Prover, Prover, Prover yeah, easy for me to say, Proveroff was coming out of the brand in Wheat Kings, I I said this guy's way too good for junior hockey. This guy's got to play in the National Hockey League, and he's going to be a star, and he's going to win Norris trophies. And I said all of that, and you know what? I'm going to double down on it right now, and say nothing's changed for me. Even though, to Bobby's point, he's absolutely right. Um, Prover off season. He, now what he had 17 goals last season, 17 that, but you know, I think that's not the measure of what we should be expecting. I think the 17 goal season is something of an outlier, but nevertheless, Bobby's point is well taken in, in each of his first two years in the national hockey league, Proveroff played all 82 games. And the first year he had six goals and 30 points minus seven. Uh, second year, 17 goals, 41 points, um, plus 17. So, yeah, after last season, everybody's like, wow. And, you know, restricted free agent at the end of this season. Put him in the same category as Charlie McAvoy, Zach Wierenski, Jacob Truba. Well, not Truba. He's a different, sorry. He's a restricted free agent, but he's not coming out of entry level like those other guys. But put him in the same category as McAvoy and Wierenski as potential number one defenseman in the NHL, um, potential Norris Trophy winners who are top-pairing guys and going to be studs on their blue line for the next 10, 15 years. Um, And then this year comes along, and it's 53 games played, four goals, 17 points, minus 16. 
and Provorov has had a lot of really, really rough nights. Now, mind you, the Philadelphia Flyers have had a lot of really, really rough nights across the board, and we mentioned Ron Hextall fired, Dave Hextall fired, um, everything just upside down in Philly. And I, I talked to a few pro scouts who said since the All-Star break, actually, Provorov has actually started to play more like the Ivan Provorov that we've come to know and love. Um, as for why his game went south this year, you never really know for sure. And, and hey, maybe I'm out to lunch. Maybe he's not as good as we thought he's going to be, but I don't believe that. And I've talked to enough hockey people who share my view of it that he is still a, 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 a stud defenseman waiting to happen. Um, you know what's funny? Prospects in their draft year sometimes get the yips, and they um, and 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 for no apparent reason, really good players, the bottom falls out of it for them. I, I think of Brandon Sod in his draft year in the OHL, didn't play very well, and was projected at the beginning of the year to be a top ten pick, and then didn't even go in the first round, went in the second round, but turned out to be a really good NHL player nevertheless. I would say the same thing about the draft year. I would say the same thing about contract years for some players. And I think when Ivan Provorov got 17 goals and 41 points last year, and he knew coming into this season it was going to be a big year for him because potentially he was eligible for that um, extension, um, that maybe he got the yips a little bit. When, when things started to go south for him and the team, at the beginning of the season that, you know, maybe he started to get down on himself. Um, Ivan Provorov is probably not a guy that's experienced a lot of real adversity in his life when it comes to his hockey career. And I think with the bottom falling out of things for the Philadelphia Flyers and to some degree Provorov himself early this season, that there was probably a loss of confidence there. And he's a guy from people who, tell me they know him really well they say he's really really hard on himself that his expectations of what he's going to do nobody's got higher expectations for Ivan Provorov than 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 Provorov himself and that the 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 pressure he would apply to himself could become an onerous thing especially after getting off to such a poor start but um, I I can't believe based on the player I saw a play for the Brandon Wheat Kings in junior based on what we saw of him in his first two years of his entry-level deal, um, that that he's not going to find a way to get back to what we thought he's going to be. Now, as for impacting the contract, absolutely it impacts the contract. Um, you know, if he, if he was a, an absolute stud in his platform year and matched the, and or exceeded the totals that he put up in his second season in the National Hockey League, then I could see the Philadelphia Flyers signing him to, you know, the long-term, you know, five, six, seven, eight-year deal at big, big, big money for defensemen in the National Hockey League. He would be that good. But now that he's had a platform year that's been absolutely forgettable, unless he really strings things together here the rest of the way. And as I said, I've talked to some pro scouts who believe he started to do that since the All-Star break. Um that uh, it will impact his, his contract. So, you know, maybe he's got to do the bridge deal. Maybe it's not going to be for as much money as he thought it was going to be. And that's fine, too, because the cream always rises to the top. And I would surmise and submit that uh, Ivan Provorov is still going to be a top-pairing guy in the NHL and a, a chance to really establish himself as that stud number one-pairing defenseman.
Okay, another question here, Philadelphia Flyer related. We're actually heavy on Flyer questions this week. That's good because I think I did a Bobcast earlier this season where right after I did one Bobcast, I think Dave Hackstall got fired. And or no, 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 no. Maybe it was Hextall. I can't remember. Anyways, whatever happened in Philadelphia it was big news. But it happened like a day or two after I taped the Bobcast. So by the time I got to the next Bobcast, it was kind of old news. And when I started kind of reviewing what had happened since the last Bobcast and I didn't go in depth about what happened in Philadelphia, I had a bunch of Flyer fans tweet at me. How, how little respect I was giving them. I know it's unusual for Flyer fans to get angry at anybody, but, but uh, they did that time. So maybe we're making up for it now by coming up with yet another Philadelphia Flyer question on this episode of the Bobcast. Hi, Bob. Big fan of the program. Appreciate all the hard work you do. As a Flyers fan this season, coaching changes have been a constant topic of discussion around the team. I was never a fan of appointing Scott Gordon, the interim coach, Based on his track record in the NHL and the AHL in the past, the Flyers' recent skid got me thinking, has any NHL team ever fired their interim coach in season? Sorry, has any team ever fired their coach in season twice? I know Gordon will play out the rest of the year barring some crazy unforeseen circumstances, but I'm curious if a team has ever done this, this in the past. You know what? I actually looked up the answer to this question and... I don't have my research in front of me. Yes, the answer is yes. There have been double coaching changes in one season, but um, I forget the exact circumstances. But anyways, this email from um, Bill in Philadelphia came in on January 14th, so well, well, well before this Philadelphia Flyer hot streak. Um, So... um, I'm sure Bill and all the fans in Philly are feeling just a little better about Scott Gordon's interim coaching tag right now than they did back in mid-January when um, when Bill went through uh, his concerns. And, and so much so that I, let's not get carried, as I said earlier when we were talking about regression and what's likely to follow an eight or a 10-game winning streak is 500 hockey or maybe even a seven or eight-game losing streak. Um, let's not forget that. But I will say this. Um, I've talked to some people in Philadelphia in and around the team, and they've really been impressed with the uh, level-headed and uh, methodical approach that Scott Gordon and uh, assistant coach Rick Wilson, who came in um, after the, the, the coaching changes were made in Philly, and um, and they really liked the um, quite aside from the winning streak, and and as I said, you know the goaltender gets a lot of the credit for some of that, but um, the, the the special teams have been much better. The the way the Flyers have defended the front of the net and tightened things up defensively, and some of the new systems that they've installed, and the reality is for much of the the, the first weeks, if not months. Of, of Scott Gordon's um, interim coaching career with the Flyers. They had little or no practice time. So they were really just kind of uh, doing triage, um, trying to stop the bleeding. And now that they've had a little time to get some coaching in place, they seem to be, the Flyers seem to be responding to it. But as I said, I don't want to get too, too carried away here. And I'm And I'm not suggesting for a moment that, Scott Gordon is the leading contender to be the next full-time head coach of the Philadelphia Flyers. 
But at the time that he was hired, Chuck Fletcher did say that he would be a candidate. And he's certainly, in the last number of weeks here, he's not done anything to hurt his cause as a candidate. But I also believe that Chuck Fletcher and the, the, uh, his superiors in Philadelphia will be looking at all their options when the season's over. And everybody knows that, and I, and I think I mentioned it earlier in the year, that I could see Chuck and the Flyers wanting to do big game hunting when it comes to available coaches. So if that means trying to get Joel Quenville, then that means trying to get Joel Quenville and uh, see where it goes from there. But I, I do believe some kudos are in order for Scott Gordon and his staff for getting the Flyers um, on the right side of things here lately. And that um, Gordon at least has thrown his... I mean, if the Flyers were getting dummied every night still, then for sure we wouldn't be even raising the notion of Scott Gordon as a candidate for the job. But um, I think you've at least got to put his name in the hat and then we'll see where things go when the season's over. Alrighty then, uh, time for some listener feedback. And um, you will recall that at the end of last month, January 30th, was Bell Let's Talk Day. And uh, millions and millions of dollars were raised for mental health initiatives um, in Canada, which is awesome. And it's amazing how the whole movement um, has transcended the Canadian aspect and, and, and how, how big it became with so many high-profile people in the United States as well. And I think anything we can do to continue the fight to let people know that if they're having emotional or mental issues, mental health issues, um, to speak up, to, uh, to, to go and try and get the help that they need. And also for those of us that don't experience uh, mental health issues, to make sure that we're acutely aware um, that we need to be kind to people and that we need to be there for people and that if we can lend an ear or any kind of support or direction for anybody who's experiencing any kind of problems, um, and you know, the, the hashtag sick, not weak, and, and it is a sickness, it's not a weakness, and we've got to keep, you know, doing everything possible to erase that stigma. So anyways, um, it, it can't be just, Wednesday, January 30th, and, and I did some videos online and tweeted some of this stuff. It's, it's got to be every day, and, um, and I know you, you, you can't get righteous about it and, and literally every minute of every day be talking about mental health initiatives and, and what have you, but we need to bring it up here on the Bobcast now just to, to reinforce that it's not just Bell Let's Talk Day on January 30th. It's got to be, for all of us, a reminder every day. So if you need help, speak up. If, uh, if you can offer help, speak up and be there and, and, and be an ear or a shoulder or whatever support is required. So in that vein, it was a year ago after Bell Let's Talk of 2018 that I got an email from a guy by the name of um, Nick B. Um, he, a year ago, Nick wrote, Seeing the awesome support that Bell Let's Talk by everyone is a great way to let people know that it's okay to talk about mental health. Seeing this is the real reason I wanted to email you. It's embarrassing to try and explain to loved ones, friends, and peers mental health problems. I've been suffering from depression, ADAD, and anxiety for a long time. 
I'm married now and have a child, and sometimes it gets overwhelming. It's hard to cope with how I feel, an emotional roller coaster, and it's hard for me to explain even to loved ones how I'm feeling. I've had professional help in the past, and some treatments have helped, others not so much. I just wanted to personally thank you for your, all your articles, radio hits, and podcasts. So that was from Nick a year ago, and we, 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 we talked about Nick, and he was part of the listener feedback a year ago now. And fast forward to Wednesday, January 30th, which was Bell Let's Talk Day, and another email from our friend Nick B. Bob, good evening. First things first, I wanted to say thank you for reading my email last year on the Bobcast. It was an amazing feeling while I was working, listening to my words that I sent you, and it brought me to tears. It made me very proud to share something so uncomfortable for me to even talk about, something that always made me doubt myself or question if I'm right or wrong. Would this person treat me differently if they knew the true Nick, the real me? That's probably the toughest part of depression or suffering with mental illness. Part of me is embarrassed to share that, discuss it, to open up, to open that that can with a cover that can probably never be closed again. I had some family members listen to it, and it wasn't always the most positive feedback. I'm sharing a part of myself with total strangers, and they were a little turned off at that fact. I truly was just trying to help someone that needs to hear that maybe someone else is struggling just as much as they are, and it's okay to not always agree, but at least support one another. I write you again, Bob, because my goal this year is to not be afraid to help my closest friends and family understand who I am. I'm in my early 40s. I can't flick a switch and change who I am. I work for a large telecom company and will be looking at recourses of support I can receive through our insurance benefits department and hopefully making my situation a little bit easier to maintain and possibly improve. It's really difficult for people to comprehend if they think you're successful, happily married with a great supporting family, friends and peers, and still have difficulty finding happiness within yourself. It's a daily struggle that I will continue to carry. I'm not a doctor or a professional in any stretch of the imagination. But if anyone would like to be a beam, a joint, a nut, a bolt in this pillar of support, feel free to find me on Twitter at FlutterBurke17. That's at F-L-U-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-K-E-1-7. And not to break with tradition with meeting a famous hockey hero, I had the pleasure of meeting Robert Gordon at a hockey tournament that I played in last year near the Boston area, sponsored by the Dropkick Murphys and True Hockey. It was an awesome weekend playing alongside some of my closest friends. The highlight wasn't meeting Bobby or winning the whole goddamn thing movie quote, but seeing my 66-year-old father, Nifty, take it hard to the net scoring a goal, and my brother playing in the tournament and sharing that moment with the both of them. As always, Bob, you are a man of the people. We've never met, but I always appreciate everything you stand for, and it's not always about hockey. A good part of it is, and I love that part. Great job on the pod, Bob. Cheers, Nick B. And Nick was kind enough to include a great picture, left to right, his brother, his father, Nick, and his cousin holding a trophy uh, that they won in this uh, tournament in Boston. So um, I think the, the the message and the words from Nick B pretty much speak from themselves. And I'll just echo what I said off the top. If you need help, reach out. Um, if you know somebody that needs help, 
be there for them, and let's make every day Let's Talk Day and uh, support everybody for uh, mental health. Okay, second listener feedback question comes from Dane Britton in Edmonton, Alberta. And Dane was kind enough to email us after um, a recent Bobcast episode where we talked about the two penalty shots at the World Juniors. And I ventured that um, I knew the rule was if you score on the first penalty shot, the second penalty shot turns into a minor penalty. And I said, the hell with that. Let's you know, give the team the option if they want it. Let them have two penalty shots on the same stoppage. And Dane, a referee, was kind enough to email us and say the following. Hey, Bob, the reason that the second penalty shot cannot be taken if the first one is scored on um, in a situation where two penalty shots have been called at the same stoppage is because you cannot have two goals happening at the same time of the game. For example, say play was whistled down with 9.13 on the game clock for two penalty shots. If the player scores on his first shot, the official time of the goal on the game sheet would be 9.13. If he was allowed to shoot again and scored, the one player would have scored two goals at exact same time of 9.13. This is why the rule states that the second shot turns into a minor penalty if the first results in a goal. Thanks for your time. Dane Britton, Edmonton, Alberta. P.S. I'm currently enjoying refereeing one of the best Bantam tournaments in the world, the John Reed Memorial Tournament in St. Albert, Alberta. The hockey is great and the overall vibe is upbeat and fun. Hockey at its best, in my opinion. Well, Dane, thanks very much for that and uh, I appreciate the, uh, the education on the rationale and the reason for not having back-to-back penalty shots on the same stoppage. That said, I don't care. I mean, I understand that someone has decided that you can't have two goals scored at the exact same time, to which I would say, why not? What would really happen? How would the world change if at 9.13 of the second period, Bob McKenzie scored two goals? I know it would look a little freaky on the game sheet, but as long as they both get marked down as penalty shots, we could come to live with that, I think. But in any case, thanks for the explanation, Dane, and it's obviously... A good one. Okay, a couple of rules questions, and then uh, we got to get cracking here because I got to go do insider trading, and Darren Dreger's sick, and I probably don't have enough material, and I'm going to have to steal some items from LeBron. So here we go. Um, this one comes from Dave Williams. Hey, Bob, love your show. I was watching my son's NCAA game the other night at North, uh, Northeastern University at UMass on the TSN app. In the third period of the game, the official called a, a misconduct on the goalie, a 10-minute misconduct on the goalie for UMass. I assume for mouthing off, although I'm not sure why he would mouth off. They were winning 6 nothing. The referee sent the goalie to the penalty box for the 10 minutes. I've never seen that before anywhere. Is that a rule in the NHL? And if so, how often does it get called? Well, first off, Dave, thanks for the um, uh, email. Um, I envy you uh, with your son playing at Northeastern. Uh, great school. Um, great arena. Great barn. Matthews Arena. Fantastic. Um, and, of course, my son Mike played four years at St. Lawrence University from 06 to 10. Got to play at Appleton Arena, another great barn. And um, uh, it was a, the best of times for a hockey dad 
to have a kid playing those four years of NCAA and my wife and Cindy and I traveling here, there and everywhere to uh, to watch the games. And I'm sure for uh, Dave Williams with the Sun on Northeastern, it's exactly the same. So kudos to you, Dave. Enjoy it. It goes way, way, way too fast. Anyways, back to the question at hand. Um, this cannot happen in the National Hockey League. A goalie never serves a penalty in the NHL. Um, not a minor penalty, not a major penalty, not a misconduct. Um, the only one being, of course, is that if he gets ejected from the game, then he's obviously out of the hockey game. But the same is not true um, in the NCAA. And as it turns out here, we are going to go to rule 28.2 of the NCAA rule book. Hold on one second here. I had it up and now it's on a PDF and now I got to scroll back and this is great podcasting where you keep people waiting. Hold on. We're almost there. Okay. So here we go. Okay. First off, should point out rule 28.1, a minor penalty to a goalkeeper. A goalkeeper shall not be sent to the penalty bench for an offense that incurs a minor penalty. Instead, the captain of the offending any the offending team shall designate another member of the team who is on the ice when the offense was committed to serve the penalty, and such substitute shall not be changed. Okay, so that rule is the same as the National Hockey League rule. But 28.2 in the NCAA rulebook, major or misconduct penalty to a goalkeeper. If a goalkeeper incurs a major or misconduct penalty, the goalkeeper shall serve the time penalty but a substitute player and goalkeeper's equipment should be allowed in the game, replacing some other player. When a major penalty is assessed, a player without goalkeeper's equipment shall go to the penalty bench with the goalkeeper and shall go on the ice in place of the penalized goalkeeper when the penalty time has expired. The penalized goalkeeper may not leave the penalty bench until the first stoppage in play after the expiration of the penalty. So you can see where this is going. If you get a five-minute major, let's say uh, uh, the goaltender, the college goalie goes all Ron Hextall and uh, gets a five-minute major for the, the big tomahawk chop. He, goes to, uh, he has to go serve his five-minute major in the penalty bench. Another player must go over to the bench with him, sit there, and if the five-minute major expires while play is still going on, then the skater can dash onto the ice and the team's no longer shorthanded. The goalie would not be permitted to go back and get back in the net or go to the doghouse, wherever the head coach wants to put him, until the next stoppage in play. And so same deal for the 10-minute misconduct. Um, Once the 10 minutes is up, he's got to stay in there until a stoppage in play, and then he comes out and he's eligible to return to the game. One other point to make should be noted. um, NCAA rules also allow a college hockey team to dress three goaltenders and it's not entirely uncommon and I used to see this all the time at St. Lawrence especially in home games Um, they wouldn't travel a third goalie all the time but um, they would uh, most certainly in many instances have a third goalie on the bench um, in in some of those games so come the quirky differences between NCAA rules and the NHL One more rules question for you here. Uh, This one comes from Josh in Pittsburgh. This is a good one, actually. Hi, Bob. While listening to Season 3, Episode 9, a question regarding delayed penalties reminded me of a somewhat silly question I have had before, which came to me while I was playing NHL 19. I think the kids call that 
NHL, NHL 19. Uh, for content, uh, oh, by the way, the, uh, the the kids comment line, that was me interposing that in Joshua's email. He wasn't being a smart ass. I was. So let's go back to Chell. For context to what inspired this, the scene is the Pittsburgh. This is in Josh's video game, by the way. The Pittsburgh Penguins are playing the Montreal Canadiens in Chell. The Penguins have just taken a penalty and the Habs have possession of the puck. So a delayed penalty is called. Montreal pulls their goalie for the extra man. From behind the Montreal net, a Montreal player attempts to stretch pass up the ice. However, the puck bounces off the skate of the Penguins player and rolls into the net for a goal. The Penguin player never touches the puck with his stick. Is this a good goal? I was unsure since I know if it was deemed the Penguins player had possession or control, the play would be blown dead before the puck goes into the net. But if the puck just ricochets off you, does that count as for as possession? For what it's worth, in the game, the goal did not count. In, in his video game, in Chell, the goal did not count. But to make it even more confusing, the reason is the game didn't count it was because it was deemed there was a distinct kicking motion when the puck bounced off the skate. Okay, now you're getting silly, Josh. Okay, thanks for sticking around this long on the question. And more importantly, thank you for all that you do. Warm regards, Josh from Pittsburgh. Well, Josh, um, here's the very simple answer to your question. The goal would not count in the hypothetical Chell situation that you laid out. And the reason is one second here. I think I've got an email that'll explain it because uh, I've got a rule here. Hold on. Here we go. Rule 78.5 parentheses XI parentheses. During the delayed calling of a penalty, the offending team cannot score unless the non-offending team shoots the puck into their own net. This shall mean that a deflection off an offending player or any physical action by the offending player that may cause the puck to enter the non-offending team's goal shall not be considered a legal goal. Play shall be stopped before the puck enters the net whenever possible and the signaled penalty, and the signaled penalty assessed the offending team. So there you have it. it you can't, uh, during a delayed penalty, bounce it off the other team's shin pad and into the net. Case closed. And uh, thanks to Stephen Wacom, Director of Officiating for the National Hockey League, for a little assistance on some of these tough officiating questions. Okay, final question of the Bobcast. And um, I do apologize because I've run out of time here. As I mentioned a few moments ago, I'm behind schedule. I had planned on some Netflix recommendations, a little bit of wine talk, but uh, time's kind of gotten away on me here, so it'll all have to wait. Um, anyways, this next question comes from Mike in Toronto. Hi, Bob. I'm sure this has been brought up before, but has TSN ever considered releasing insider trading as a podcast, even if it were just a straight audio from the TV segments with no other production elements added, Ella, what your American broadcasting friends do with pardon the interruption, I definitely think it would find an audience. Thanks, as always, for the insight. Mike from Toronto. Well, Mike, you're absolutely right. It would be a really great idea. The, the, the problem with insider trading, I, what we should really do, and, and 
Darren Dreger, Pierre Lebrun, myself, and some of the, the, the tall foreheads at TSN. We've talked about this in the past. If we were really smart, um, and it's not even a case of being smart or dumb, if we had more time, we, we would turn insider trading into a regular podcast, but more so along the lines of an extended insider trading. We do insider trading every Tuesday and every Thursday. The item usually runs three, four, five minutes, depending on availability in Center on any given night. The problem that we run into is that when Darren Dreger, Pierre Lebrun, and Bob McKenzie show up to do insider trading, usually one, two, or all three of us are hairs on fire. We've got all sorts of stuff on the go. We've got a bunch of, uh, all of us have radio hits to do. We've got game broadcasts to do. Um, it's actually kind of hilarious to see the, the, the ballet and work to try and get insider trading taped and, and, and on the next edition of Sports Center, which is usually five, 10 minutes later than that. In other words, it comes at a time of the day when it's next to impossible for us to carve out the kind of time that would be necessary to do an extended version of insider trading. And as for taking the four or five minute um, insider trading hit itself, I mean, it's up on tsn.ca. It's available worldwide on tsn.ca. I guess we could throw it up as a podcast um, and maybe we should do that. But um, it's it's eminently available for anybody who wants to uh, uh, to, to get it. So anyways, that's that. Now, that brings me to the, uh, as I've been teasing through the entire Bobcast, two weeks today, Thursday, February 21st, the last Thursday before the trade deadline on Monday, February 25th. Um, as we did a year ago, I have twisted the arm of Darren Dreger and Pierre Lebrun, and they are going to join me live in studio, well, live to tape, um, in studio um, that Thursday afternoon, and we're going to do um, the full pre-Trade Center edition of the Bobcast as we did last year. It was by far the most popular Bobcast. It's the only Bobcast of the year where we bring anybody else in, and for obvious reasons, everybody's interest is piqued about what's going on at the deadline, and Pierre and Dregs have absolutely the best contacts in the game, uh, way better than mine. And uh, it's a pleasure to get all three of us in there um, talking about all the possibilities that could happen. So I hope you enjoyed today's Bobcast. Uh, sorry we didn't get to Netflix wine or any uh, goofy stuff, but um, there were lots of trade questions there and uh, there's many more to come. So uh, enjoy this one and we'll come back at you in two weeks with the uh, three insiders uh, pre-Trade Center edition of the Bobcast. Thanks. Have a good one. Take care. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, 
follow the at TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time and have a great weekend.